Our sermon text today is Joshua chapter 5. We're making our way through that book, if you're just joining us. And while you're finding Joshua chapter 5, I want you to think about something that I tried to help us think about last week. For those who don't know, we weren't in here. We were outside, and um, it was a glorious day. Today would be another beautiful day to be out there, but being outside may have limited the ability for me to convey or others to focus. But I tried to say, when you've looked forward to something for a long time, first of all, you know what that's like. Uh, as a kid looking for Christmas or a birthday or an adult looking for some kind of much anticipated moment of great joy. Last Saturday, one of our own precious sisters being married to the gift of God, man of her dreams. That's a very good thing to look forward to. But sometimes we all know what it's like, not only to look forward to something for a long time, but to have that inglorious letdown. When the moment finally passes that it didn't meet my expectation, it didn't scratch the itch, you feel almost underwhelmed by something that you had expected with large expectations to be much more satisfying. Maybe you expected the high of the moment to carry you for a long time afterward and we often build up with great excitement to things that we find ourselves only to be disappointed by when the experience happens. There is something we learn in Scripture time and time again. When God's people, I'm talking about a particular subset of humans, experience the fulfillment of God's promises the blessings only increase. As we enjoy his presence and walk in obedience to his commands, now here's the reality. Right here, right now, some of us know what that's like. And some of us know the good and God-wrought experience of that really substantial letdown. You know good and well you're walking in sin. You're harboring unconfessed sin in your heart. One of God's great gifts to you is not, to inle- is not letting you enjoy the blessedness of fellowship with him. It's actually a ministry of the Spirit's kindness to you to make you miserable when you don't live in obedience to Christ. The theme of today's sermon, theme of Joshua chapter 5, I believe, is the goodness of what happens when God's people are in God's place under God's rule. His people in his place, enjoying his presence. With that in mind, we'll look at Joshua chapter 5. I'll tell you what we'll find there, and then we'll read all 15 verses. Verse 1 is a standalone. It's a summary of what the nations experienced when Israel crossed the Jordan River. Verses 2 to 15 is the rest of it. And it's got three parts. It's got Israel circumcised, Israel enjoying the Passover, And then this mysterious figure, this man with a sword in his hand, the angel of the Lord. That's verses 2 to 15. Let your eyes fall on verse 1 and tune your heart to the voice of your creator. 
Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed that their hearts melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. So Joshua made himself flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. Verse 5. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey, verse 7. Their children, whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the sons of Israel camped at Gilgal, they observed the Passover on the evening of the 14th day of the month on the desert plains of Jericho. On the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. Verse 12, the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land so that the sons of Israel no longer had manna that they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year, 13. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's hosts said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Join me at the throne of grace as we pray. Father, we ask that you would most of all Most of all, Lord, show us who you are and consequently make us faithful, faithful to you, not to march out in our own power and try to win your victories and do your work, but faithful to you. 
Give us yourself, O God. In fact, if you withhold everything else from us, so be it, so long as you give us yourself. We even pray that you would not bless us with all the other things if you withhold yourself. No, Lord, like Moses, how will we be distinguished from all the peoples of the earth if you do not go with us? Give us yourself and make us want you more than we want anything else in the universe. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So there's two parts, it's verse one, and then it's the rest of it, verse two to 15. The second part, two to 15, has that circumcision, Passover, angel of the Lord. So those will be the three sub points, but the first big point is God's power among the nations. This is verse one. We're told what happened to the inhabitants of Canaan. There's only two listed, the Canaanites in verse one and the Amorites. Well, that's a summary for everybody that was in the land, they had already been listed earlier. And instead of laboring the point by listing them all again, they're summarized under Amorites and Canaanites. This is all the people. We're told that some of them were west of the Jordan and the others were by the sea, that is all the space. But we're told especially what happened to them. So let's just remember, last week we saw the mighty fulfillment of the promise of God to bring his people into the land of Canaan. After 40 years of wilderness wandering, Why did they wander for 40 years? Because of their disobedience, because of their hard-heartedness, because of their unbelief. Would it have taken them about two weeks to march from Egypt all the way to the promised land? It took them instead 40 years. And the reason, though it's hard to swallow, is repeatedly emphasized. Try this on for size in your vision of God. Does what I'm about to say fit inside the God that you presume to know? The reason it took so long to get from Egypt to Canaan is because God intended to kill an entire generation. That's the bottom line reason that it took so long. And last week we saw that that new generation under the leadership of Joshua and particularly the presence of the Almighty God represented in the Ark of the Covenant crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land and like God's presence stopped the flow of what would have killed Israel certainly, we saw also the presence of God in Christ checked the plague that would have wiped us away and we would have perished forever. The cross stopped the power of sin and Christ absorbed it in his mighty self. Well, now God's people are in the land. Verse one, as I said, speaks about God's power among the nations. What's the effect in the kings of the Amorites? What's the effect in the kings of the Canaanites? Well, it's kind of interesting that we're looking in verse one from the vantage point of all those kings. How did they know that Israel had crossed the Jordan? Well, I presume, and some commentaries tend to draw out this, this inference as well. I presume they had spies, just like Joshua sent spies into Jericho, and Moses had sent Joshua and Caleb and 10 other spies into Canaan. Previously, these other kings weren't foolish. We know for certain that the inhabitants of Jericho knew that Israel was camped across the river for a long time. And so the other kings of the land probably knew that as well. And when they crossed, they had spies. And I imagine that The emissaries run back to the king and they say, you're not gonna believe it. 
two million people came inside our house and locked the door behind them. They're in here, and we're locked in with them. And when the kings heard that the people of God were on their side of the river, their hearts melted. Verse 1. There was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel. When Israel entered the land, they set up camp. While the kings were shaken in their shoes, Israel commenced to holding a worship service, eating a good meal, taking a nap. This is the preview of what was to come. Verse 1 is really a summary sketch of the rest of the book. The nations trembled. They would soon be trampled. While the kings are shaking in their boots, verse 2 then turns the camera angle away from them back to what was happening in the camp of Israel at Gilgal. This is our second point, and it's got three parts to it. God's power among the nations transitions in verse 2 to God's power and his presence among his people. When God's people experience a long-awaited fulfillment of his promises, like I opened the message with, you know what it's like to anticipate something. When God's people experience the long-awaited fulfillment of his promises, what would you expect them to do? God had made a promise all the way back in Genesis 12 in the time of Abraham, about 500 years prior to this time that he would give to Israel the land of Canaan. The descendants of Abraham would occupy this land. Now here we are some 500 years after Genesis chapter 12 and they are literally for the first day, the first 24 hour period, their feet are on that soil that God had promised to give to them centuries prior. What would you expect them to do next? There's three portions as I mentioned to Chapter 5, verses 2 to 12, tell us about the sign, the sacrifice, and the Savior. The sign is circumcision, the sacrifice, remembrance is Passover, and the Savior, I believe, is the angel of the Lord. First, the sign. Look at verses 2 to 9. The sign of the covenant. This is a renewal ceremony, and it's circumcision. In verses 2 to 9, we read about Joshua being commanded to get a flint knife And I suppose he had an arsenal of people that circumcised all the men who had not yet been circumcised. That's verses 2 to 9. Isn't this interesting? It may strike you as somewhat odd that the, the first thing, if you think about it for a moment, maybe you don't think it's odd, but maybe some of us, I would be among your camp, think it's a little odd that the first thing Israel does when they get into the promised land is hamstring all their warriors. Make them unable to fight. It's the first thing they did. Go take the land. Now put yourself in a predicament where you cannot even walk. The first thing they do is make the men unable to fight. We can deduce from this passage and what's led up to it that zero of the grown men that crossed the Jordan had been 
recipients of the sign of the covenant, circumcision, but all the way back in Genesis 17, God clearly commanded Israel to circumcise every male in every generation, but none of them that crossed the Jordan River had been circumcised, save the few, the minority that were old enough to have also crossed the Red Sea, those that were younger than 20 years old. For 40 years, I don't know how many babies were born, but it was a lot of them, and I don't know how many of them, but in God's equitable distribution, about half of them were male, and a grand total of zero of them for 40 years had been circumcised. Direct disobedience to the clear command of their God. Verse 4 and 5 tells us that the previous generation, which came out of Egypt, were circumcised. Most of them died. The new generation that was born in the wilderness included, uh, according to verse 2, those who needed to be circumcised a second time. It does not mean, verse 2, a second time, that you again circumcise the same group. For those who are privy enough to understand what we're talking about in circumcision, that would be impossible. It doesn't mean again to the same group. It means those who had not yet been circumcised in the wilderness, and this is made clear in verses 3 and following. Verse 7 says, their children whom he raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Hebrews chapter 3, all the way in the New Testament, says the reason all the circumcised people died in the wilderness, Hebrews 3, because they were unbelieving You can take all the outward and have zero of the inward. And our passage says in verse 5, the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all that nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, I know we know Bible stories. You've heard before about the crossing of the Jordan River. I know you've heard the Bible stories. You've heard about Noah and the ark and all the animals. But have you pictured them enough in your mind's eye to see the decomp and smell the refuse? Noah and the ark is not a favorable story about some fuzzy animals. It's about eight human beings being preserved alive and the totality of humanity perishing under the water. It's about God's judgment for everybody that's not safe in the ark. Similarly, do you see 40 long years of corpses falling in the desert sand? Numbers chapter 14 Tune your ear to the voice of your God. How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? This is God talking to the wilderness generation. I've heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which they are making against me. Say this to them, as I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so surely I will do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men, according to your complete number from 20 years old 
and upward who have grumbled against me. Surely you shall not come into the land which I swore to settle you, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become prey. Did you lead us out here to die? We would have been better off in Egypt. You said your children would die in the wilderness. I fed them every day. I gave them water every day. I protected them and I took care of them every day. You said they would become a prey. I will bring them in and they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, can you see this verse? Your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Do the math. Every single individual that entered the land of Canaan, if I'm doing math halfway accurately, was 60 years old or younger, except for two people, Joshua and Caleb. Precious few of those people had crossed the Red Sea and the Jordan River. Most of them were born in the wilderness. They had heard the stories of God's mighty power. Now they had tasted it for themselves. They knew his presence and they knew for themselves that the God of the universe was among them. He stopped the waters in a heap. He let them walk on dry land. They knew that God was with them. And after they're brought out from a sinful generation and experienced God's power for themselves, what did they do next? I said they hamstrung the whole army. They took the sign that they belonged to that God. The place where the ceremony took place is, we're told, Gilgal, verse 9. That's a play on words. The Hebrew word for Gilgal sounds a lot like the Hebrew word for roll away. And verse 9 says they called it Gilgal because it was there that God rolled away the reproach of Egypt. You want to put all this together, the second point, God's power and presence among his people, putting it all together, the sign of the covenant, circumcision for all the men was applied to God's people after they experienced his saving power, the crossing of the Jordan. They were brought into God's promises, then they received the sign of belonging to him. That same pattern holds true consistently watertight in the New Testament. God rolls away our approach. He cleanses us from the penalty of our sin. When we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we take the public sign that we belong to him. Philippians chapter 3 says, the true circumcision, it's not something that happens outside. It's something that happens in your heart. We are the true circumcision, Philippians 3, who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. New Testament circumcision is of your heart, not of your body. After experiencing God's salvation, we're to obey him by receiving the new covenant sign of his saving mercies. And in the New Testament, that's believer's baptism by immersion. There's a very powerful gospel picture in this circumcision ceremony. We're just told in verse one, every king in Canaan is shaking in their boots. Isn't that the best time to attack them? Sometimes. Carpe diem, seize the day. Not always. The first thing you do, the first thing you do is make sure that none of your men of war can even walk. Wound the warriors first. 
so that you will know for sure that the victory that's eventually won is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It reminds me of another wounded warrior. He wasn't laid low for four days at a camp outside of Jericho. He didn't have a circumcision of the outside. He had a flint knife not put in a small part, but he had a spear driven deep into his side all the way to his heart when the king of glory, the mighty warrior, died. It looks like the backwards way to win a victory unless you realize the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. But there's another warrior who took a wound and it looks like the most improbable way for God to gain a victory. But I said it before and I'm gonna say it again. And if it seems too super spiritual, well, may the Lord help me, if it is, to not emphasize it as heavily. But if I'm on to something here, may the Lord empower me to say it over and over and over again through our Joshua series. It's way easier. It's way easier for you to want God to get all those bad people out there. And it's a different thing altogether for you to side with God and want him to get all the badness in here. It's way easier to think the problem is over there and out there. It's another thing altogether to realize what you most need is for God to win a victory inside of you. Verse eight tells us they stayed there until they were healed. Instead of attacking the kings when they were shaken in their shoes, they do nothing. They just sit and wait until they're healed. What do they do several days after they're waiting and healing? That leads to our second subpoint under the second heading, God's power and presence among his people, not only circumcision, but verses 10 to 12, this is beautiful, the Passover. We can figure out from chapter four, verse 10, if you care to know, and chapter five, verse 10, that the Passover started four days after Israel crossed the Jordan and arrived at Gilgal in the promised land. I misspoke last week, but again, it was hard for me to convey and probably harder for you to hear in that beautiful outdoor setting. But I said last week that they crossed the Jordan on the day of Passover. That was wrong. They crossed the Jordan on the day that the sacrifice for the Passover was to be selected the 10th day of the first month. Then, four days later, the 14th day, they celebrated it. That's what we find here in verses 10 to 12. It's the celebration of the Passover. So, what I'm saying is the first thing God told his people to do when they cross into the land is not fight, make yourself incapable of fighting. And number two, celebrate God's victory. According to chapter 4, verse 19, Israel crossed on the 10th day of the first month. Chapter 5, verse 10, they celebrated the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. The whole episode corresponds perfectly to Exodus chapter 12, the first Passover. 
you got to do a little bit of Bible history, okay, kind of in the pastor-teacher mode. Let me remind you of your Bible history. The first Passover happened, Exodus chapter 12, the night before Israel left Egypt. And it's called the Passover because the death angel passed over the houses of the Israelites, not because they were Israelites, but because they had the blood on their door. And so if you're under the blood, you're safe from the wrath of the angel of death, but those houses that did not, that is all the Egyptians, the firstborn in every house died all the way down to livestock. That event was celebrated every single year after that. So for 40 years up until this point, every single year on the 14th day of the first month, these people celebrated the Passover. This passage has some subtleties that let us know they're not hearkening back to the previous 39 years. On this day, they're perfectly following the pattern of the very first one. This is a covenant renewal ceremony. What are some of those subtleties that let us know it's not the wilderness Passovers that are in view, it's that first one, especially. Well, here's some of them. Remember when Rahab hid the spies on her roof? What did she hide them under? Flax. Guess what didn't grow in the season when it flooded? Flax. She prepared it for what? The Passover. What season did Israel cross when the waters were really low? No, they've crossed in the season of flood. Why? To show God's power, yes, but also to let us know we're coming near to Passover season. This is springtime. There's these little subtleties. But the more you press on, you start to get these clues. Tenth day of the first month. Now, 14th day of the first month. Guess what? The only other place in the Old Testament where those details are noted are the very first Passover. The recorder of the book of Joshua is tying this experience when you cross the Jordan to the first Passover with explicit language connections. But I don't want to miss the forest for the trees. In Exodus chapter 12, we're told in preparation for the first Passover that Exodus 13 says, you will be taken into a land flowing with milk and honey. Guess what phrase shows up again in Joshua 5, land flowing with milk and honey. But speaking of not missing the forest for the trees, make note of the fact that in Joshua 5, before, before, before the people do anything in the land, before they fight anybody, before they take possession of anything, they first worship. David Howard said in his commentary on this passage, the Passover celebration in Joshua would now mark Israel's entrance into Canaan just as it had earlier marked Israel's exodus from Egypt. Joshua's clearly tying the two episodes together. And then we're told, as soon as God's people eat the produce of the land, celebrate the Passover, something happens. What happens? No more manna. We're told in verse 12, the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten some of the produce of the land. So the sons of Israel no longer had manna because they ate some of the yield of the land of Canaan during that year. This is also a connection to the first Passover, Exodus 16, 35. The sons of Israel ate manna for 40 years until they came into the inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. 
So all the way back in Exodus 16, we get a foreshadowing of today's passage. 40 years later, Joshua chapter 5, verse 12. The miracle didn't stop. It was just provided a new way. Every day miraculously provided through manna, now provided through this land of promise. You get to eat the fruit of something you never worked for. Hmm, that reminds me of something. You see, Israel had a lot of work to do. But the main thing they needed to know is they're not going to be preserved or saved by any of their own work. We've said it around here. It's a provocative way to put it, but I say it so that you'll actually think about it. You are saved by works. That's the provocative way to put it. If you want to sound like that, that's really bad theology. But you're not saved by your own work. It's the work of another. What's the Passover all about? Thank you, God, for putting black ink on white paper in the New Testament so that we wouldn't miss the obvious. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. Do you want the death angel to pass over you? Put yourself under his blood, the only safe place in the universe. So these people are worshiping the Redeemer as they're sitting there healing From the sign of the covenant, it's a covenant renewal ceremony. In Joshua chapter 5, the new generation of Israel is saying, we will obey the God who spoke to our fathers in Exodus 12. We will follow the God who took our parents through the Red Sea. We will not grumble and complain against him and disobey him. We will not harden our heart and stiffen our neck against him. We will not complain against him and say, why did you bring us over here only to let us die? We will honor him. That's what Joshua chapter 5 is all about. So from this chapter, we learn that two things stopped. Manna stopped, and the courage of all the nations melted. Can you imagine it? You're sitting in this camp on this day. The Passover's being celebrated. You look over your shoulder, and you see that pile of memorial stones that had been brought on the shoulders of one man from every tribe, Right from the base of the Jordan River's dry bed, the people are circumcised, the Passover's being celebrated. You can almost hear the rattling of the bones while the nations are trembling. You can definitely hear the jubilee of the chorus of the saints worshiping and putting all this together when Israel experienced God's salvation, crossing of the Jordan. They applied the the sign of the covenant to those whom God saved, circumcision, and they celebrated God's salvation by observing the Passover. David Firth said in his commentary, Israel had to be reminded that their advance into the land was not, in the first instance, a military campaign. God wasn't saying, first, go fight. It was first a journey into receiving the promises of God And a journey like that needed to be shaped by faithfulness to what Yahweh demanded of them. And faithfulness to God means that we make God's priorities our priorities. You see what happens, it's kind of the pattern of, not kinda, it's the pattern of the New Testament epistles. Indicatives, then imperatives. Pretty much all the letters of the New Testament are filled with what God has done, indicatives, and what we are to do imperatives. You get that out of order, you miss the gospel entirely. We do not work for our salvation, we work from it. And what's happening 
in Joshua is the indicative. Look at what God has done. Receive his mighty power, then obey. And if you try to do it the other way around, you'll join every other workspace religion in the world and you'll miss out on the grace of the gospel. So I've taken opportunity to try to connect our first point, circumcision, second subpoint, Passover, but it's not the main point. We conclude with verses 13 to 15. As exuberant as the moment must have been, neither the circumcision nor the Passover celebration would prove to be the climax of the passage. Those who celebrated the Passover did so after they received the sign of the covenant. It's like baptism, then the Lord's Supper in the New Testament. But there's one more portion of chapter 15. Third and final subpoint under this second heading, God's presence and power among his people. Three little verses, 13, 14, 15. One majestic character. This man, this angel of the Lord, as we observe Israel's attention to the details of circumcision and the Passover, we can discern that the Lord is more interested in Israel's faith than in their fight. Spiritual concerns over their military conquest becomes apparent in verses 13 to 15. One commentary, commentary said of these three little verses that close the chapter, this principle, worship before war, this principle, of course, is one that stands today. God wants your undivided loyalty and he wants your holiness. That's what verses 13 to 15 are about. Let your eyes fall on it again. Verse 13, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? The captain of the Lord's host said, Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So at first, the warriors are wounded so they can't fight. Second, they're reminded of God's great saving mercies, the Passover, where a lamb dies in the stead of the people so that they don't incur his wrath. Obviously, both of those pointing us to the cross of Christ and the great redemption that Jesus has purchased at Calvary. But now here he is, the angel of the Lord. Who is this man? We're told he's standing with a sword drawn in his hand. One of the little fellows this tall was walking into the church building with me this morning. We just happened to meet up and uh, I won't embarrass him who it was by saying his name, but maybe you've noticed there's a little boy among us that's got a sword today. And I said, oh, hey, I want you to listen really closely because today we're gonna see a man in God's word who's got a sword in his hand. Who is this man with a sword drawn in his hand? That phrase is used one other time in the whole Bible. It's when the angel of the Lord stood before Balaam, preventing him from cursing God's people. He had a sword drawn in his hand. 
Verse 14, we learned that whoever this was, he had quite a different set of interests than Joshua had. Joshua wanted to know, are you for us or are you for them? Are you for our adversaries? Verse 13, but the man said, wrong question. Verse 14, neither one, instead of engaging with Joshua's question, the man asserted that he was, verse 14, quote, captain of the host of the Lord. That phrase occurs a lot in the Bible when it's not referring to God. 35 times to be specific. We're told that other captains of armies are people like Fickle and Sisera, Abner, Shobak, Joab, Omni, Omri, Naaman, and others. They're all referred to as, quote, commander of the army. But here, this person is the commander of the Lord's army. One commentary said, verse 15, quote, strongly suggests that this is a divine being representing God and his angelic hosts. And again, the focus on the person himself points to a divine being representing God. Like Moses, Joshua, in this moment, was commanded to do something. Take your shoes off. Remove your sandals from your feet. And there's a reason that that is grounded in, for the place where you are standing is holy. Just like Moses before the burning bush, Joshua now before this man has to get low with his face in the dust and his feet uncovered, prostrate in worship. The point, I believe, of seeing this mighty warrior happens at a particular time in Israel's journey because there's a reason that God wants us to reckon with. Before Israel fought with the inhabitants of Canaan, they needed to know that the holy God was among them and he would be the one fighting for them. Just like when God destroyed Egypt's armies, you remember he swept them away in the Red Sea. But right before that happened, they were absolutely terrified. They were trapped between the sea and the imposing Egyptian army coming behind them. I may have said Israel, I meant Egypt's armies. But just before God wiped out Egypt, this is what he said to Israel. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Do you see the leader of God's people? Can you see the dust on his face, the dirt on his nose? Can you see his hands prostrate in the ground? Can you see his feet uncovered as he bows low before this mighty man? David Howard said there's three possibilities for who this man is. He's simply an angel sent by the Lord with a special commission. He's a momentary descent of God himself into visibility. Or this is the Logos himself, the Christ, a kind of temporary pre-incarnation of the second person of the Trinity. Well, number one, an angel with a special commission. It seems that this option, Howard said, is not adequate because this angel represents God and receives worship. Number two, and also in my estimation not plausible because if it's a descent of God into visibility, then John 1.18 has some problems. No man has seen God at any time. First Timothy 6 has problems. God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. 
John 4, to the woman at the well, God is spirit. Just like our catechism from today's. My estimation number three is the only possible biblically consistent option. It's somehow a temporary pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. This, in my estimation, is a Christophany. This is an appearance of Christ in time past. Another commentator said, some evangelical interpreters take these manifestations of the angel of the Lord to be a pre-New Testament revelation of Christ. G.B. Thunderberg said, only the logos or some manifestation of the person of God would be able to speak with the authority this person speaks of, speaks with as if he were God himself. Here's what I'm suggesting. The angel who appeared to Joshua was none other than the one who would save him and provide God's promises for all of Israel. The one Joshua worshiped is the very one who saved Joshua's soul, the one who split the Jordan River and previously the Red Sea, the one who would be the Passover that Joshua could still taste on his taste buds and feel in his belly. That meal represented this one who would not only have some small portion cut off, but his life cut off for the salvation of his people. He would be sacrificed in the fullness of time. This is the one who conquers all of God's enemies all by himself, needing nobody else's help, and nobody can stay the power of his sword. The one thing that Israel needed more than anything else is the same thing you need. You may not feel sensible to this reality. You may not care that this is your greatest need. On the authority of God's word, I stand before you and say, what you need more than anything else for time and eternity is a greater apprehension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that happens when Israel crosses the Jordan River is that they show that they belong to the God who saves, sign of the covenant. They sit down and have a meal at his table, Passover, and they bow low at his feet in reverential praise. Do you want to know what true greatness is? Oh, for more dads in more homes, more husbands in their marriages. Oh, for more teenagers before their friends and co-workers in their workplace. Oh, for more moms in front of their children to have true greatness. Joshua is one of the few figures in the Old Testament that we don't read a lot about his checkered past. He's this imminent example of godliness. But of all Joshua's great conquests, nothing was greater in his life than what's represented in this moment. Do you want to know what true greatness is? bowing low at the feet of Jesus in humble praise and worship, receiving commands, not doing things our own way. Here's the applications. Too many, I got eight of them listed. I'll give you a couple. God cares more deeply about making himself known to you than you care about knowing him. The Lord who had been with Moses is evidently the same God who's here with Joshua. And that God wanted all Israel to know it. From the first chapter, hearkening back to Moses, God begins to speak to Joshua saying, I will be with you, be strong and courageous. On repeat, God 
declares his presence with his people, particularly through his leader, Joshua. The same God who had been with Moses is with Joshua and is with this new generation of Israel, and he's making himself known on repeat. Not only does he care more about making himself known than you care to know him, he's not hiding from you. He loves to reveal himself to you. He's already promised through prophets like Jeremiah, if you search for him with all your heart, he will let you find him. Not only that, but he cares not only about making himself known, he actually wants you to know and enjoy him. He wants you to know his presence, the precious expression of his covenant love among his people represented in the Ark of the Covenant mentioned 17 times in the previous two chapters. This glory box that represents the manifestation of God's presence among his people, but now you don't see the box. You see the presence, the man drawn with the, the man standing with a sword drawn in his hand. When God is present with his people, he's present with all of his gospel power. One commentator said, it is for this reason that the writer of Hebrews refers back to this passage, reflecting on God's promise to be with Joshua, quoting Psalm 118 in Hebrews chapter 13, I will not fear for you are with me. It's God's sweet covenant presence. As I said last week and tried to shout it over the sirens blaring through the neighborhood, Amy Carmichael said, all we want and all we need. Do you agree with this? This like super spiritual missionary talk or is this Christianity? All we want and all we need is God's ungrieved presence all the time. That's it. God with us. In the New Testament, the church is constantly referred to as the house of God, the dwelling place of God. You are his temple. You're a spiritual house built with spiritual bricks. God lives here among you. And he's willing to slip away without us even noticing. Removing the lampstand, Revelation chapter two and three. Withdrawing the favorable sense of his presence. God cares about himself being known more than we want to know him, but he also loves to be enjoyed. He wants us to know his covenant presence. He shows up in power among his obedient people. He wants us unified. Even the Transjordan tribes had to cross through the Jordan River. The ones who were going to live on the other side had to cross through the dry ground because all of them needed the sign of the covenant. They all had to be together in this covenantal sign of circumcision because the unity of God's people is very important to the God who is unified with himself and he wants us to reflect him and his unity in our fellowship together he cares about our preparation he cares about us bowing low in holiness he cares about circumcision and Passover he cares about in the previous chapter, before you cross the Jordan, take a whole day, a whole day, a 24-hour period, and don't you do anything but one thing, consecrate yourself. Get ready because tomorrow God's going to do something mighty among you. I wonder if we're that kind of people, ready for the God of all grace to meet us in power and 
favor and faithfulness. God cares about leadership for his people. Before Joshua led anybody, Joshua needed to be led. True greatness is bowing low at the feet of Jesus. Take your shoes off, worship him. If he doesn't make your heart skip a beat, if he doesn't make your jaw drop, if he doesn't take your breath away, it's not because there's a deficiency in him. Look again. Look again, and if you don't see him as the glorious commander of the armies of the Lord, ask God to take the scales off your eyes. God cares about detailed attention to his word. Everything that happens in Joshua chapter 5 is a meticulous following of Exodus 12 and 13. Are we that meticulous with his word? He cares about fulfilling his promises to his people. He had told them 40 years before, I'm going to give you this land. And here they are. God's delays are not delays from God's vantage point. He's teaching us something in the waiting. And sometimes he's waiting to get some people out of the way. So that those who are sensitive to his Holy Spirit and walking in fellowship with Christ can experience the blessings that he long intended to give to his people And I'd be a gigantic hypocrite if I didn't stand before you and say, I don't want to be the detriment. I don't want to be the reason this church doesn't have the fullest expression of the blessing of God. Moses couldn't lead God's people into the promised land because he didn't treat God as holy in the midst of all the people when he struck the rock. Instead of speaking to it like God commanded, do you care? about being an inhibition and aching in the camp that all God's people suffer judgment, loss because one person won't walk in obedience to his commands as we're going to see next week and oh how I pray you'll come back God cares very deeply about saving every single believer Next week, the promise that was made to Rahab gets fulfilled when the wrath of God falls on the place where her house was built. Not one stone falls off of its place just at her house. Everything else destroyed, one saint and her family preserved. God cares deeply about saving all of his people. And he's going to do it by his own power and might, says the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you save a people all by yourself and all for yourself. And we do ask, Lord, that you would make us more desirable of your presence and your power than we are of our supposed accomplishments for you. Show us, Lord, that the first order of business is worship and obedience. And you will direct how we walk in light of that fellowship with you. Please, Lord, don't let us presume to rush ahead of you and do your work in our power. It's foolish. Oh, Lord, cause us to rest in Christ. 
the mighty redeemer who took the wound to save your people, to fulfill your promises. And we pray that the angel of the Lord, Psalm 37, will encamp around us because we fear him. Lord, let us fall low at the feet of Jesus. Reverential worship, trembling before your holiness, embracing your covenant love and promises. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.